0: Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the Defense Department's supply chain sends up a signal flare.
1: The market signal is very clear that the current kind of market structure can't really be sustainable.
0: The political appointee problem for the Biden administration and beyond.
1: A lot
2: of these roles are, one, they're things that could probably be done just as easily, if not better, by
3: career officials.
0: And good news for agency back to the office plans.
3: We were very pleased to see that the task force and the actions they took were consistent with leading practices for effective interagency coordination.
0: It's Wednesday, October 27th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast sponsored by Hewlett Packard Enterprise today. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The State Department will stand up a new office that focuses on international cybersecurity. An ambassador at large, the Senate confirms, would lead the Bureau of Cyberspace and Digital Policy. The Bureau's portfolio will include cyber policy and negotiations, deterrence, and operations and capacity building. The Thrift Savings Plan will debut an app for its participants next summer. TSP Director of External Affairs Kim Weaver says the app's a response to participant requests. The TSP will add a virtual agent and live chat soon, too. Kim Weaver will be on Friday's Daily Scoop podcast to tell you more. The Defense Department is hiring for a new artificial intelligence ethics leader. Jackson Barnett's covering the story for FedScoop. Jackson, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What will this person do, and how did this opening happen?
4: Well, previously, Alka Patel was, the, as they say, the responsible AI lead. Essentially, her role was developing policy that implemented the principles that the DOD adopted in February of 2020. And the new leader would come into a mandate that they continue that work, essentially.
0: You have a story on fedscoop.com right now that Alka Patel left the department very recently to go to Comcast uh, to work in their government relations office. Is the new position a parallel to her job? Are they just filling her job or are they tweaking the job description a little bit? Do
4: we know? The job description is very similar to what Patel was doing when she was in the role. Whether or not the new person has kind of latitude to make it their own or to take it in a new
0: direction is, uh, remains to be seen. Jackson Barnett of FedScoop, more on fedscoop.com. Thanks very much. Thank you. You can read more on Alka Patel's departure from the Pentagon and more on all these stories and many others at fedscoop.com. four Defense Department documents lay out the Biden administration's strategy to shore up the Pentagon's supply chain. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Industrial Policy Jesse Salazar says supply chain analysis has gone beyond the department to the entire government. Jerry McGinn is executive director of the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. He's former acting Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Manufacturing and Industrial Base. Jerry, welcome! Thanks for coming on the program. Everybody talks about resilience in the supply chain. What do you see improving or getting worse as a result of what we've seen for the last 18 months or so? Welcome.
1: Great. Well, it's great to be with you, Francis, and uh, really excited about your uh, about the Fed scoop effort, and uh, honored to be with you. Yeah, know resilience um, has been an increasing focus in defense matters uh, that, that we've talked about previously, and uh, and there's been a big effort to improve uh, resilience. But we're seeing that this is a challenge that's not going to go away, you know, uh, immediately. One of the things I'd like to say and I've written about before is, that, you know, it took us, you know, several decades to get into the situation where we had our supply chains spread across globally. And there's a lot of goodness in that um, economically, but it creates challenges, it, um, and security challenges or economic challenges you're seeing now um, at the price of the pump and, and um, on supply chain of commercial goods. Um, and um, so, you know, it took us a while to get into these situations. It's going to take us a while to get out. So I think there's commercial aspects of there's defense aspects of it and I look forward to diving into it with you.
0: What's the responsibility of the department and what's the responsibility of the companies that sell to the department to ascertain the supply chains for whatever it is, whether it's a good or a service. It's striking to me that, you know, we talked a little bit uh, before we went on the air about the fact that if you look at news reports from the commercial community, It's not just uh, goods companies that are talking about supply chain issues. It's services companies, too. And I wonder what the responsibility of each side of that vendor-customer relationship with the department is to ascertain their supply chains.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I, I think some of this goes back to general commercial practices um, the impacts defense and commercial in that uh, we very much focus on optimizing um, efficiency and, uh, of supply chain, And that meant like just-in-time manufacturing, reducing inventory and so on, uh, which makes me- great sense uh, commercially, uh, assuming you don't have disruptions, right? Um, in the defense world, that has also been the case, uh, but um, the challenges are the impacts are much more significant. So and, um, so, DODs had two aspects. One, they have had the longstanding Buy America Act where you know, a lot of things, uh, mo- much more defense items um, uh, are produced in the United States than, than more commercial kind of industries, and that's by law. Um, and um, But there are aspects of the defense supply chain that are um, kind of way down there in terms of materials, microelectronics, and so on. And that's where DoD doesn't really move the needle on market there. They're like a 1% consumer, so they, they can't drive that marketplace. And so, that, so what we've seen is that they, those, those supply chains have migrated overseas that's created challenges. And how do you address that is sort of what we're doing now, um, both defense and commercial, because this is has impacts for both. Um, and um, so, you know, so that's one aspect of it. And, you know, like I guess it's taken us decades to get in. We're gonna, it's going to take us some time to get out. So there's investment that is happening on microelectronics, um, you know, with this CHIPS Act, which hopefully we'll get through and uh, on rare earths to try to rebuild domestic capacity. But part of it is there's a tension there because you can't. Um, you can't create a, a, a situation where only government support will kind of allow this to sustain. So it's got to be commercially sustainable. Um, and that's a, a balance that the department is trying, the Department of Defense is trying to manage as well as, um, you know, some of the other agencies and and working with commercial vendors on this.
0: The commercial vendors though are seeing the value in diversifying their supply chains too, aren't they? I mean, that's, that's maybe one of the biggest outcomes of this is that where the the defense department and the civilian side of the federal government were seeking that from their vendors until the pandemic, it strikes me, the vendors were a little apprehensive just because of the bottom line. And now they understand it's not necessarily good for the bottom line to have all of this supply chain uh, stuff concentrated other places.
1: It, no, that, that's right. I think you are, you know, you know, seeing that on the kind of efforts called reshoring and creating alternative sources, um, and uh, it's like I say, it's going to take a while for that to wash out because it's got to it's got to get to a level where what's commercially sustainable or in defense where you've got, you know, um, viable companies and alternatives. Um, so but that it definitely is. Uh, it, it is um, it, the, the market signal is very clear that the, the current kind of market structure can't really be sustainable. But we also don't want to go back to where we're, you know, we're doing autarkic or, you know, you know, domestic, you know, um, uh, you know, um, you know, souls, you know, where we're just doing trying to build everything in the U.S., which is not really sustainable either. Right.
0: I am grateful to you for the invitation to come and be a part of your fall conference uh, coming up very soon. Jerry plug that. And uh, what do you want folks to take away from that meeting that's coming up in Crystal City in a little bit?
1: uh great yeah so we're having and we're honored to have you uh francis moderate one of our panels we're having our third annual um government contracting conference that we co-host with department with defense acquisition university dau and here we're looking at the major issues facing the government contracting industry uh, broadly. So this is the issues facing government, um, companies, as well as um, and how academics can assist. So we're honored to have you kind of moderate one of our panels. And we've got a great lineup of uh, commercial um, industry executives, um, CEOs from SAIC, Mantec, and others, as well as senior government officials from DOD, a Department of Interior, former GSA administrator. So we're Excited to have you um, there and love for folks to come. Just go to uh, uh, govcon.gmu.edu to register. Uh, we have both in-person and uh, virtual options for you.
0: I'm going to uh, be there in person. I'm looking forward to it, and we'll put a link to it uh, at mm-hmm. uh, in the show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Uh, you lined okay. me up for a panel called Model Contracts to Effect Change, with three super smart people folks can find the details about that it's very kind of you to have me be a part of that and i'm just i told you before we started recording i'm just excited to get back out there and see humans in person again jerry uh thanks very much uh, for coming on the program great. today appreciate it
1: yeah, really great to see you francis or great to talk with you since we're on a podcast <laughs> and uh look forward to seeing you in person next week
0: you can read more about resilience in the dod supply chain in today's show notes at the Six Defense Department nominees are headed to the floor of the Senate for confirmation votes. More nominees are on hold, though, at the Pentagon and other agencies. Lauren DeYoung-Schulman is Vice President for Research and Evaluation at the Partnership for Public Service. She's former senior advisor to the National Security Advisor. Lauren, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Are we satisfied dissatisfied neutral on the current state of the confirmation process how many people are in how many nominees have been named and so on welcome
2: So here's the deal. I think that the Biden administration got off to a slow start in terms of their nominations across the board, but they have caught up with almost all of their peers from Trump, Obama, and George W. Bush. Where they are behind, almost everyone is in the Senate. The Senate has not confirmed a record number of nominations across the board at agencies. It's particularly slow with the State Department, but it's slow across the board at a lot of priority agencies for the president. Biden's agenda, as well as some of the crises facing this country. Just to give it one critical example, right now we've got—I see—about uh, 205 have been confirmed in, under the Biden administration. About 205 nominees that is just ahead of the Trump administration that it had that was the worst in history that had 186 confirmed. President Obama, by this point, had over 350 nominees confirmed, and President George W. Bush had over 370 nominees confirmed. So the Biden leadership slate still has a ton of vacancies in it. And if I were in the White House, I'd be looking at the Senate saying, what's the deal, guys?
0: Is part of the problem here the volume of positions that any administration has to fill at this point? One of the debates that seems to be ongoing is do all of these positions that have to be senate confirmed really have to be senate confirmed lauren
2: oh you are you are singing my tune francis so i absolutely think we have far too many senate confirmed positions right now there are over 1200 that require the senate to go through the nomination and confirmation process and that requires in a number of cases them to do vetting and investigations hearing and so forth And a lot of these roles are, one, they're things that could probably be done just as easily, if not better, by career officials. Some of the technical roles, the administrative roles, operational budget. These are things that rely on long-term knowledge of the federal government that you would find more effectively in the career civil service. But on top of that, the president has other options. There are ways to put into place political appointees without them having to go through the confirmation process. And there's a lot of important roles in that space. The head of the CDC, the head of NIH, many of these are not Senate-confirmed roles and don't require that process. So we've clearly acknowledged that some of them make more sense as something a president can put in place at his leisure and have in place over, over administrations as necessary. So I think that there's a lot of opportunity for the Senate and the Biden administration to work together to say, this is not working. We need to get more people in place to be able to be running some of these key portfolios. And the system that we've set up for ourselves is just slowing everything down to no one's betterment. Like there's not political deals that are happening right now that are benefiting either party that would actually make this process worthwhile. All of these holds worthwhile. At the moment, all we're seeing is just a slowdown.
0: Is that possibility of deal making, though, at some point in the future, a big enough card that members of the Senate would be um, would be adverse to to keeping it? At some point in time, somebody may want to use that, and that's been such a powerful argument in Congress over the years, hasn't it?
2: So I think the Senate's role in the advising consent process to put leaders in place in key agencies is an important one. This is absolutely something that should be preserved. But they've got to be honest with themselves. They're not using this role. One of the key things that they should be doing is through the hearing process, through actually vetting the nominees themselves to make sure that they are qualified and introducing them to the public and getting a sense of their views that process is slowed down considerably and not happening in a way that would actually demonstrate the Senate's power. On top of that, you see right now with Senator Cruz's across-the-board hold on State Department, Treasury, and other nominees related to Nord Stream 2, that issue is not making any progress right now. It's just slowing down the pace of President Biden's nominees to the State Department and other key agencies and not actually gaining Senator Cruz any of the political benefits that he would want to see. I think you're right, that some of this needs to be preserved. I think there are key positions that require the Senate and the public to be able to have that public vetting process but is it more important to say like, I might have a car that I wanna play in 10 years, or is it more important to have actually people running national security agencies when we have all these crises going on? I hope the latter, and I hope the Senate sees it the same way.
0: The job that sticks out in my mind that converted, and it's been a number of years now, and I'm sure there have been others in the interim, I hope so, um, was the chief human capital officer job at the Homeland Security Department. Uh, That job went from political to career number of years ago. Not asking you to pull memory on that specific job, Lauren, but what is Mm -hmm. what is an effective selling campaign, even if it's just a job or two at a time? Like I'm trying to figure out why a chief information officer job or a Chico job at a federal agency really needs to be a political appointee when those are generally non-controversial, non-political positions that the person when the person gets into the job and performs the duties of the job you're
2: asking a great question with great examples. So about 10 years ago, the Senate actually made an attempt to do exactly what we're talking about. So we've got too many political uh, uh, appointees that have to go through the confirmation process. And it doesn't make sense, particularly that when you look at DHS and others to have some human capital officers who are political, some who are career, we need to have some balance here. So they did a level setting. But guess what? Other things have crept up. New positions have popped up. You see in some agencies, for example, the Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs is a Senate-confirmed official, and in other cases it's not. Or the Assistant Secretary of Public Affairs is a Senate-confirmed official, and in other places it's not. The roles you're talking about Chief Human Capital Officers and CIOs, I think those are ones that require a technical knowledge, a long-standing dedication to the sustainability of policy, and a um, affinity for public service and a, an intent to stay in public service for a long period of time that make much more sense for a career official than for a, a political official. On the CIO point, when uh, there's a, actually a great case of a couple, a couple months ago, made about the Department of Energy cybersecurity official. Do you want a cybersecurity official who is thinking in 18 month increments or thinking in 10 year increments and thinking about what are the contracts, the capabilities, the personnel and so on that I need to build in for my agency? Most Senate confirmed officials are in their roles for about 18 years, sorry, 18 years, 18 months to two years. That's not enough time to actually make significant change in so many of the key issues we're talking about today. A career official would make much more sense for this, or at minimum one, who's not going to face a nine-month barrier of actually getting into the job.
0: So you the the I imagine you're talking about the Caesar office at uh, the Energy Department. And that was interesting because the yeah. the Trump administration's selection to take that job Karen Evans happens to have that scope, that long-term scope that you talk about, but there's no guarantee that every person that would get chosen for that job or some similar job would do so. Um, Could that be a place to start this conversation, Lauren, where the one, maybe the administration or some other organization could argue to the Senate, listen, some of these jobs are political, some of these jobs are career, and we don't have any evidence that the folks who are doing this from a career perspective are doing anything contrary to the wishes of any administration of any party. Maybe that's a place we can go to start this process.
2: I think that's a great way to start the conversation. And I think that the additional point that I would make here is there's always a concern in the Senate that if it's not somebody who's confirmed, that they're gonna low they're gonna lose their ability to bring them in for hearings, that they're gonna lose their power over them effectively. And that's just simply not the case. Look at hearings and see the number of career officials who effectively step up to the seat and testify, provide evidence, are a part of investigations and are are frankly really. Um, well qualified to work well with their legislative counterparts. And I think with that knowledge, the Senate can be able to see that they have um, just as much capability and influence over career officials and actually have what will benefit themselves by being able to work with career officials who have that longer term perspective and who are stepping up to the witness bench with a sense of what their priorities are going to be over the next several years and a partnership that they can work with senators who are themselves in the seat longer than many of the political officials that they confirm.
0: Lauren DeYoung Schulman of the Partnership for Public Service. Great insight. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. You can read more about the confirmation process in today's show notes and see the latest on the appointee tracker at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. The new federal data strategy action plan includes specific steps for agencies to take to execute the strategy. Former GSA CIO Casey Coleman has advice on tomorrow's show. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Thursday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. Yeah. <sharp inhale> The Office of Personnel Management says agencies can start disciplining employees that don't comply with the vaccine mandate November 9th. That's the day after federal employees are supposed to show their employers confirmation of their shots. Michelle Rosenberg is Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. She's looking at federal agency re-entry and workplace safety planning for GAO. Michelle, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What specifically was the scope of your work here? What are you looking at as agencies are starting to think about how they reopen and how they keep their employees safe when they do so. Welcome.
3: Well, thanks for having me, Francis. And as part of this work, we looked at three specific things. First, we examined agencies' approaches to initial reentry planning, and we defined that as the planning that occurred in 2020. Second, we assessed the extent to which agencies' work safe, safe, workplace safety plans are consistent with federal guidance. And those are the plans that were put in place um, in the first part of 2021. So January through April 2021. And then thirdly, we examine actions taken to coordinate and oversee both that initial re-entry planning and the workplace safety planning across the federal government. So looking to see across all of government, the consistency and coordination and oversight of the agency's plans.
0: So the main takeaway that I have from your work, Michelle, is you write in one passage, agencies 2020 reentry plans varied considerably. That was before the advent of the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force in January of this year. And it strikes me that these plans that we're seeing now—you um, write uh, increased under 2021 guidance related to workplace safety. These these coordination plans. Am I getting kind of the gist of the way that these plans have evolved over time?
3: Yes, Francis, you are exactly right. We found that um, coordination and oversight increased for the 2021 workplace safety planning as compared to the 2020 reentry planning, and we think that's a. Uh, there are two key factors that led to that increased coordination and oversight. The first is clarity of guidance. So for workplace safety, there was a single set of model safety principles for agencies to follow. Those were issued in January of 2021. In contrast for the initial re-entry planning, there were numerous different sources of guidance for agencies to follow. So for our work, we actually looked across five different sets of guidance issued by the federal government um, for agencies to follow and to incorporate into their planning and identified elements or themes that were in multiple sources of plans. So that was one of the key uh, factors related to the increased uh, consistency was the clarity of guidance. And the second was centralized oversight. Um, Exactly as you had mentioned, the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force, which is quite a mouthful. Um, (laughs) We refer to it as the Task Force for Simplicity. Um, That was established in January 2021 to coordinate and oversee government-wide workplace safety plans. So agencies had to submit their plans, to the task force for review. The task force reviewed them, made sure that they were consistent with the guidance or uh, provided exceptions when appropriate.
0: I've been talking to you and your colleagues at GAO for many years now, and I'm used to um, toward the middle or end of the conversation talking about the recommendations that you and your colleagues make. I don't see any here. Is there a reason for that? Or is this a different type of work than you and your colleagues normally do? Or what's going on there, Michelle?
3: Well, I think it's because what we would have hoped to see is what uh, happened in 2021, that there was centralized oversight, that plans were reviewed, and that they ensured that there was consistency, and although the uh, model workplace safety principles have evolved since then and actually since our review, that same structure of having oversight was in place already and there were all indications that it was going to be continued to be used. And so that oversight and uh, consistency in the planning would remain. And so we didn't think it was necessary to make a recommendation.
0: You referenced that uh, earlier in our conversation and in this work. Uh, you wrote it this way uh, in the uh, in the new report: increased clarity and oversight, and supported consistency in workplace planning as a result of that guidance from the task force. By the way, wise call and just calling it the task force because you're right. That is a uh, there's a bunch of words there put together. Um, what do you see as the, the most important thing that agencies can th- should think about moving forward? Is it just this, this kind of clarity about collaboration and, and, and working with people to get them back? It sounds like that's the best thing that's happened as a result of the advent of the task force and the way that they're working together.
3: I do think that is really key, um, the collaboration. And you know, we were very pleased to see that the task force and the actions they took were consistent with leading practices for effective interagency coordination. Um, the task force included relevant participants with um, the specific expertise that was needed, um, things such as cross-government policy, uh, expertise in public health and employee safety. Um, they also had defined outcomes, they had timeframes uh, set out for when agencies needed to comply um, with the guidance and they clearly articulated um, the roles of the task force and also for agencies own individual COVID safety coordination team. Um, each agency uh, was required to and had specific coordination teams that included some of those same types of expertise. And so continuing to make sure that uh, they follow those model principles, I think would be key in moving forward.
0: Michelle Rosenberg of the Government Accountability Office. Thanks very much for coming on. I appreciate your time today.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: You can find a link to Michelle's work on Back to the Office in today's show notes at TheDailyScoopPodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. Cloud and Data Services is one part of a new State Department contract that could be worth up to $8 billion. State is not the only agency betting on cloud computing after the pandemic. Bill Burnham is Chief Technology Officer for U.S. Public Sector for Hewlett Packard Enterprise. He's former Chief Technology Officer for U.S. Special Operations Command. HPE sponsors today's Daily Scoop podcast. Bill, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. These agencies are going to hybrid IT and the hybrid cloud more and more and more. What is driving that? Why is that something that agencies find appealing, not just because the Office of Management and Budget told them to in 2018, the cloud <laughs> smart policy, but what are the benefits that they're realizing as a result of doing it? Welcome, Bill. Well,
4: I appreciate the opportunity to be here. I really do. And uh, and, and share with the listeners. Uh, what we see is there's three drivers uh, from an industry technology point of view that is that is bringing hybrid IT, AKA hybrid cloud to the fore. Uh, really it's it's data, and, and I, I hope we can burn each of these a little bit, but it's data, uh, the massive amounts of data that we can now capture and generate largely outside of a data center at the edge, what we'll call colloquially the edge. Uh, it's also the maturation of what we would call cloud native computing platforms that can now exist outside of your normal commercial uh, cloud service provider environment right when you talk about cloud native computing if you go to what the the cloud native computing foundation describes or defines as cloud technology it's about running your applications inside containers with elastic orchestration and and traditionally that really was born inside our our, our what we call our hyperscalers or our cloud service providers. And that's the only place you could get that kind of elastic environment. But the development of platforms that, that can now provide that cloud native capability anywhere in your data center at the edge means we can now bring cloud technology to the edge. So you got data at the edge, you got the maturation of the cloud platforms, so you can now run cloud native at the edge. And then lastly, that's driven uh, companies like ours to create much more powerful computing that can exist at the edge, because traditionally your your high-performance computing and your powerful computing is relegated to a data center where you control the ambient temperature to 70 to 75 degrees. Uh, uh, But what our customers are demanding of us is, hey, we need to take this computing out to where the data is, because now we have a cloud platform we can move out there. So that's kind of driving this hybrid IT model, which when it's really looked at from a 20,000-foot perspective means you have the ability to spawn cloud-native workloads, meaning containerized workloads, at the edge where your data is generated, so you can make fast insights at your core data center, where maybe you're going to keep your critical workloads or you want to do high transactional kind of workloads that could be expensive in a hyperscaler, or you spawn that in the hyperscaler environment where you where they have uh, unique capabilities that you don't want to have on-premise. So that, that edge to core to cloud construct with a, a platform of cloud-native capability riding across it almost ubiquitously seamlessly, that's hybrid cloud and that allows you to take advantage of edge computing, core computing, and cloud computing. So three developmental areas, data, cloud-native platforms, and now powerful computing that can run in 55C 130 degrees is what's enabling this to become a reality.
0: We started uh, we talked a little bit before we went on the air about the way that private sector companies are approaching this versus the way that the federal government agencies are approaching this, particularly regarding those three issues. What do you see private sector companies doing either differently from agencies or that agencies aren't doing or aren't doing yet?
4: So, what you have out in the private sector and and it's it's really about the the way the private sector functions is the first company to make the insight the first mover makes the money at the end of the day so it so what you see in the private sector is they they want to deal with the data where it's generated uh so they can get the fastest insights and so they don't have the expense of moving that data let's be clear right we are now generating huge amounts of data compared to just five years ago and and moving that data uh, either it can be expensive and it it causes latency and so companies are realizing that hey if I deal with the data it's where it's generated all I need to send back is the insight so so a lot of companies out there are now investing in edge computing and and coming to companies like ours to say hey I want exquisite edge computing with accelerators and GPUs and all that sitting out inside my. Oil field, or energy farm, or cell tower, so I can deal with the data there. And I will tell you, our federal customers are are starting to move that direction. Uh, It's they are still uh, very much data center focused, uh, and 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 what Suzette Kent did uh, brilliantly, as you know, in the twenty nineteen guidance she gave out with the data center optimization initiative update. Uh, is she said, hey, stop worrying about closing data centers, and let's modernize your workloads. Let's get your applications rationalized, meaning we architected the containers to what she knew and what she describes in that policy is, if you get to a containerized workload, you're gonna realize the benefit, and then you can move to the edge. The challenge we have in the federal government is we we, we are not yet very containerized. We don't have a lot of cloud native style of computing workloads which which makes it much harder to move those workloads out to the edge environment. But they're getting better across the board.
0: Given the kind of elasticity that's required for what you just laid out there, how does one build, I mean, is, I guess architecture is the right word. How does one build a structure to allow for that kind of elasticity, especially at the edge, which is where just about every agency wants to be now, Bill?
4: Great, great question. And I think, I think it comes down to a, a couple of different factors. And, I, and I'm going to describe it in that tiered methodology again. You've got your infrastructure piece where you've got to have uh some redundant network connectivity that's going to t- connect your edge, to core, to the cloud, uh and the cloud service providers, whether no matter who the hyperscaler is, right? You ought to have more than one tied into your core so you have that uh that economics. Uh, but but then on top of that, you've got several different layers of what we would call a platform. One would be Kind of a smart data fabric so that the data that's at the edge or the data sitting in the core or the data you decide to park in a cloud service provider is what's considered ubiquitously available can be seen by workloads no matter what. So you have to have a smart data fabric layer. Uh, And then you've got to have an orchestration layer. Uh, Most folks base their orchestration layer today on Kubernetes, uh, which is your open source standard. And that Kubernetes layer that can see your edge, your core, and your cloud service provider because of your infrastructure hardware can now orchestrate workloads where they make sense, right? You can set up your orchestration layer to spawn the workloads where your data is. It's kind of a data gravity concept where instead of moving your data back to your data center and your workload or moving your data all into a a hyperscaler cloud service provider, modern day concept behind hybrid IT is I'm going to move my workload to my data, leave my data there where it's secure, it's known and I don't have to move it. So so you've got your hardware, that still has to be exquisite and it's gotta be functional. You got a, a data fabric, smart layer. And then on top of that, you put a, a Kubernetes-based most likely orchestration layer that's going to control where your workloads spawn. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does make sense. Um, I would love to explore those three topics that you laid out earlier. All We're right. starting to run out of time though. So I want to ask you, what's over the horizon? What does this look like a year from now, two years from now, five years from now? How does this evolve? How does it mature?
4: So what you're seeing in a, in a, and I'm just going to stick with the cloud native computing space, right? Because that is, that is what's driving a lot of this. The the awesome work of the CNCF, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, all the companies out there contributing to the CNCF. My company's a gold member, believe it or not, as a hardware manufacturer, contributing code to the CNCF. That's what's allowing all of this, uh, uh, you know, bringing the lowest common denominator compatibility. And now we have standards where you can have orchestration layers interrelating. So over the horizon, over the next two or three years, <clears throat> there's a lot of work to make authentication and identity easier because that is still not very uh seamless when you move between hyperscalers or your on-premises premises environment so there's a lot of development to be done there so that so that your identity on your local data center will also be your identity recognized inside a hyperscaler that's still a tri- tripping point uh and, and, but but that's really one of the last major ones and then what you're going to see is the, the maturity grow in private sector and in federal government of folks understanding cloud native technologies. There's still a pretty big gap in, in what's in the art of the possible and, and what we frankly understand as a user community. And, and a lot of effort right now, I will tell you, that I get engaged with is in is in customer education and customers who are saying, please come explain this cloud native thing to us because we just don't get it and and by and large you're going to see that change over the next year and a half so while we work on uh the identity and we build a little bit better tool sets on the orchestration side and and the security side obviously which is critical now you're seeing that um a lot of it's going to be educating the customers because the current hardware we have can run cloud native you're seeing cloud native everywhere it's in all your operating systems it's in all of your your hyperscalers and so So it's not about the platform supporting it, the hardware infrastructure and the the operating systems will support it. Um, we got to improve customer education and then that's gonna lead to workloads being modernized into containers.
0: Bill Burnham, thanks very much for joining me. Great to have you in the program. Thanks to HPE for sponsoring the program today.
4: You bet, thank you.
0: The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, DC. James Mahoney helps me put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Former GSA Chief Information Officer Casey Coleman is on Thursday's show. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening.